Hey, let's give this a try again. This is episode two of Matt Trueblood's baseball podcast, which I was forced to, to give it some name, so that's the name it has for now, at least. Uh, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the league championship series, where they stand at this point. Obviously, uh, they're already a couple games in on each side. I missed most of that in terms of being able to comment or even watch a large amount of it because my sister got married this past weekend. But uh, a couple of things I did see and kind of want to weigh in on. Firstly, uh, we just have to really stop it and take full stock and appreciate what the Brewers are doing. Um, The Dodgers did steal home field advantage from them, and I picked L.A. to win this series uh, in six games before it began. I think that's still my pick at this point, especially now that they stole a game at Miller Park on the front end. Um, But it's a really compelling series, uh, and the Brewers are better positioned, perhaps not better positioned, but the things that they show in every game they play continue to impress me in sort of new ways. Uh, It was really, really cool to watch them essentially win game one because they had advanced scouted Justin Turner so well. They had a hole in his swing. They knew where it was. They knew how to exploit it. They threw high and away fastballs, and he couldn't touch them. Uh, They were from pretty good pitchers with very, uh, very electric fastballs, too. But the fact that they had that scouting info, executed it so brilliantly, and in two absolutely crucial plate appearances, dominated Turner with them, was fascinating and sort of delightful just in that it was an old-school way to win a baseball game, even though we know that scouting info was probably extraordinarily fueled uh, by analytics, by the the info they have that is not just scouting, but uh, data. And then to see Turner turn that around and win game two, because Jeremy Jeffress made a really bad mistake, uh, was equally compelling. It, it really makes the narrative of this series rich and interesting going into the, the three games at Dodger Stadium. Uh, obviously, Jeffress's comments after game two were a little bit misconstrued and a little bit bizarre in the first place. He just seemed like a competitor who was wounded by losing, didn't want to appear that way, didn't want to appear weak, and sort of uh, said whatever he thought would keep himself in a confident mental mindset. So you don't blame him for any of that. I don't really blame the media for taking it in the direction that they did. Uh, You know, he did say the Dodgers got lucky. It was interesting what he meant by that. He tried to clarify afterward was that uh, that Turner's homer wasn't lucky, but some of the hits prior to that had been, and in the seventh inning that they'd gotten a bit lucky with just a chain of not necessarily hard hit balls or that kind of thing. It's all true, but at the same time, uh, he definitely said in his er, er, initial remarks that that was the pitch he wanted to throw to Turner in about the spot he wanted to throw it. And if you look back, I mean, congrats to him. Yes, he, he wanted to throw a splitter, and he managed not to accidentally throw a slider. I'm always a little confused when pitchers say, I threw the pitch I wanted to throw. Well, yeah. 
but it was the wrong pitch. It was a bad choice. I don't know if it was his or his catcher's, but throwing Turner a splitter in that situation, when they had this hole, they had so artfully found and exploited the previous night. Uh, when they had that hole and he had an opportunity to just keep drilling it, and the worst case scenario might have been a walk, uh, to try a splitter in a 2-0 count, when a couple of things are true. One is that a splitter is a very high value pitch in that when you execute it well, it induces a ton of chases and a ton of whiffs. It looks like a fastball out of the hand. Batters really struggle to adjust to it. It's one of the most effective weapons in the modern game of baseball. But when you make a mistake with it, it is homer prone. That's the drawback of the pitch, uh, along with whatever you believe or don't believe about the health-related drawbacks of it. Most of those, by the way, I don't buy into. But anyway, uh, it's a pitch that can be left hanging, and when it does, when it does just sit there, it is easy to hammer. There was nothing lucky, as Jeffress eventually acknowledged, nothing lucky about Turner jacking that pitch out of the park. It was the wrong pitch selection, and it was terribly executed. So, and that's, again, it's not, I'm not trying to strictly criticize Jeffress, who has been brilliant for so much of the season for the Brewers, but it's also interesting because here's a guy that has a fastball and a slider that, or whatever you want to call his breaking ball, that in past years would have been enough to very consistently dominate opposing hitters. But the game is changing so fast, and hitters are getting, making use of information so much better these days that even a mostly single-inning, sometimes multi-inning relief weapon like Jeffress uh, does occasionally need a third pitch in order to work his way in and out of, out of a tough lineup. Uh, he had that for most of the season. That splitter was really working for him. And then probably in the last week of the regular season, it ceased to. It really started getting away from him. And he was lucky not to let a couple of games uh, get away from him there down the stretch. And then obviously we saw him blow a save in uh, game one of the NLDS to little ultimate impact because the Brewers came back and won that game. But Jeffress, with just the fastball and slider, is not a dominant pitcher, which is wild to think about. And again, it speaks to the changes just physically and fundamentally that have been wrought on the game by the arrival of better and better information and people who process it better and the exceptional athletes we have playing these days. At any rate, he shouldn't have thrown the splitter there. It hasn't been working for him. It's been one of the reasons that he hasn't been as exceptionally effective as he was for most of the season over the last couple of weeks. And in his comments after the game, I saw a guy who's aware of some of that uh, and wants to hide it. But it's something the Brewers are going to have to bear in mind as they try to navigate through the rest of the series. They currently have a closer who is a little bit diminished and a little bit more aware of it than he'd like to admit. Just to move from that to a very related topic, though, the Brewers keep pushing the right buttons, and it is so fascinating to watch. They, they've gotten around some of Jefferson's struggles by knowing when not to lean too hard on him. And, and again, it's a needle to thread. Every team, when they get to this point in the season, especially a season as hard-fought as the Brewers has been, 
where they had to win a game 163 to get past the wild card game. Uh, every team has a needle to thread. The Brewers is, is that they don't have starters who can soak up innings reliably and shorten games for the bullpen. We think of it as bullpen shortening games for starters, but just as often you need the starter to do the opposite. They don't have guys who do that consistently. And what it's led to is periods during which Jeffress, but especially Josh Hader, have been ineffective because they don't bear up very well under such heavy use. Council has been brilliant, I think, in using Corbin Burns, using Joachim Soria since he came back from his injury to lessen the burden that he has to place on either Jeffress or Hader. And importantly, on by using just one or the other when he can get away with it, thereby maybe saving the other, keeping him down for a day, hoping that he gets something closer to their full effectiveness because neither one's operating at quite their peak level just at the moment. But if he can get something close to that, and he consistently has by managing them really, really, uh, really well, really deftly, uh, then he's going to be just fine in a lot of situations. Obviously, the emergence of a Brandon Woodruff has helped a lot with that. Um, it's going to be interesting going into Game 3 because Hader did throw 48 pitches in Game 1. And though he was down on, uh, down on Saturday and they had the day off Sunday, how much can he pitch in Game 3? How confident will Council be in asking him to get more than three outs? It's hard to say. And if you can't get more than three outs from him there may be an issue of navigating to the end of the game without leaning too heavily on Jeffress, which you also, at this particular moment, don't necessarily want to do. But again, they've, they have threaded that needle in the absolute best way they can, given where they lack pitching depth. And it's also a credit to their front office for, at the deadline, even as people criticize them for not going and getting a better starter than Gio Gonzalez, what they did do was add Soria, was at Xavier Cedeno. These guys have value, and they've filled in crucial gaps. They haven't needed to lean on Hader for situational lefty kind of stuff all but maybe once during the playoffs or even during the final week of the season. So that's been a value, and that's how they've managed to work around some of these things. And another way is they're extremely nuanced and effective defensive positioning. This is a team that had a higher defensive efficiency on fly balls this season than any other team in the league, and it wasn't particularly close. The way they did it is partially having Lorenzo Cain, who's a brilliant center fielder, anchoring a outfield defense that usually had Christian Yelich out there, and Yelich is nothing special, even in a corner, but he's not bad by any stretch. Uh... And then they were able to cover over the weakness of whoever it might be on a given day, whether that's Ryan Braun or uh, Aaron Perez or whatever the case might be, using positioning elements. And we saw that in both games one and game two, both game one and game two uh, of this series, David Fries had what would normally have been a routine fly ball to center field. Uh, in the first inning of game one, Lorenzo Cain had to really run it down because he had been playing so far over toward right center. And 
Freeze had sort of mildly compounded the Brewers' expectations about where he'd hit the ball. But those expectations were really re- well-founded. That is where Freeze hits the ball hard and hits the ball in the air the majority of the time, from right center field over. Uh, and so the positioning was good, and then Kane's athleticism allowed him to overcome the fact that Freeze happened to get a little bit around on one, uh, and he ran it down. And then the next night in the first inning, obviously, Kane had the home run robbery on what wasn't a what wasn't an especially high uh, drive to right center field. Again, because he was swung around toward right center before the before the pitch. Um, when you are as dynamic as the Brewers are about positioning outfielders, and then you have someone as good as Lorenzo Cain playing that position, uh, it really is a sort of a, an exponential effect on the outfield defense. So they've got an extremely effective phalanx out there. I also want to just make a passing comment because there are always these conversations, this time of year especially, but the conversation hasn't stopped for a few years now about the interaction of strikeouts and home runs and the disappearance of balls in play and whether that is hurting the game. And specifically, people making the assertion that it's a less entertaining game this way. And I just want to push back at that in this specific light because we talk about the lost balls in play, but because of the combination of batters understanding that pitchers are going to miss far more bats and that defenses are much better positioned in terms of optimizing where they're lining up to try and catch the ball where you hit it. Batters are focused much more on hitting the ball hard. And I think an overlooked part of this conversation is that hard hit balls are fun. Weakly hit balls most often are not. Obviously, there's the occasional dribbler by a fast player then you see whether the shortstop can charge and make a bare hand play and fire it over in time. Those are the exception. By no means the rule. Hard hit balls are more interesting, even if they end up going at a, straight at a defender because they're playing in just the right spot. This game, the way it's being played right now, incentivizes pitchers to put on their best show, throw their best stuff, design pitches that spin and move insanely and deceive hitters to try and get strikeouts, which is the most interesting thing that a pitcher can do most of the time. We can carve out exceptions for guys with extraordinary command, and they're very real, and those are my favorite pitchers. But by and large, a pitcher who can pitch for strikeouts with dazzling stuff is very fun to watch. And because those pitchers are proliferating throughout the league... Hitters are pushing back by trying more and more to hit the ball hard. If we're seeing pitchers doing the most fun thing they can do and batters doing the most fun thing they can do and fielders being positioned to neutralize those fun things that the batters do, even though we may see slightly fewer brilliant defensive plays just because there are, they're better positioned in the first place and there are fewer total balls in play, I don't think we're losing a lot of great defensive plays and we're seeing some that we wouldn't have seen before, like the routine flyout that turned into a pretty nice running catch by Kane right at the start of a crucial series. Anyway, that's a digression, but I think uh, 
a notable one, something to store away and flesh out more when the off-season comes. Again, I am reasonably confident that the Dodgers will uh, push the Brewers and take this series in about six, but it's certainly been a great series already, and I think that'll continue, which is good. The division series was such a dud, it's great to see the championship series blossoming the way it has. And the Astros-Red Sox has been a much weirder series, but I think it's also a testament to the entertainment value of this modern version of baseball. As sloppy as some of it has been, and obviously as sort of long and protracted as it was, and fraught with some walks, those walks weren't unearned. Uh, There were pitchers on both sides in the first two games of this series pitching with some fear of the two best lineups in baseball, which is what the Red Sox and Astros are at this point. The Astros only finished fifth in the AL in run scoring this year, but they're pretty close to full strength now, and given that, they're only a half step behind the Red Sox in terms of being the best offense in the league. And to see pitchers pitching away from contact from those guys, to see sometimes them coming right at them with their best stuff, some of the game's best pitchers too, and to still see the batters digging in and battling. We saw some really good long at-bats from Jose Altuve, Alex Bregman, who is the god of October, (laughs) and is really making a case for, I mean, not just awards for this individual postseason, but he's making a case to be the superstar that the league should already have crowned, but is now going to sort of take over, maybe not as the face of the Astros, because he has a certain kind of charisma, but it's very cool that the Astros have other guys with a different sort of charisma who have been around a while, in Correa and Altuve and Springer. Still, to see Bregman emerge this way is really fun. Uh, And now this series translates transitions back to Houston I don't know that the Red Sox are going to be able to bring it back to Fenway Park I thought the Astros would win in six before this series I kind of default to picking a team in six uh, just based on there are a lot of ways to look silly making a series prediction picking the team you think is slightly better to win in six is usually not one of them but to see the Astros win game one wear and sort of grind the Red Sox down even though they lost in game two I kind of think they could come home and sweep the rest of this series and be waiting for whichever team wins from the NL side and put a good thrashing on them too I know I've mentioned it before but it does bear repeating the Astros are way ahead of the game right now and I'm not sure how they do it because the game across all 30 teams you know with certain exceptions in certain aspects but the game is evolving extraordinarily quickly all teams are essentially smart at this point they're all making a lot of adjustments at once the Astros still seem two steps ahead in virtually every phase it's going to be interesting to see if the Red Sox who I consider maybe the second most uh, prepared and sort of uh, invested team right now in the majors, or at least among these four who are left. 
It'll be interesting to see if they can push to the Astros significantly. At the moment, it kind of doesn't feel like it. The Astros, extraordinarily, because every other recent champion we've seen, or even teams that get to the World Series in a given season, they'll come back the next year looking worn down, looking like the offseason was too short for them. Um, and I think that it's not an imaginary thing. I think the offseason is getting shorter, and it's uh, forced teams like the Cubs since 2016, uh, the Giants in all of their post-championship years, to pay a certain price for how hard they had to push to win that series. The Astros don't look tired. <laughs> they look invigorated. They look better than they were last year. Justin Verlander, who we talked about making major strides after he arrived in Houston last year, has made major strides from then to now as well. He is not being talked about very much as the AL Cy Young favorite, but I think he should be. Uh, And you put him alongside Garrett Cole, even though Cole had to battle against, again, an extraordinary Red Sox offense on Sunday night. I, it's hard to see how any team's going to overcome those guys, plus this insanely deep Astros bullpen, fueled by guys that, you know, the additions of Roberto Osuna, which all kinds of problems there, on field, especially off field. There are reasons to not feel good about that, but that they added him and Ryan Presley and sort of remade a bullpen that was already good and still has guys who would be good if they only had the opportunity <laughs> that they remade that bullpen on the fly midseason to complement this core of hitters that did have a little bit of a World Series hangover but are essentially over it at this point. It's scary. It's, <laughs> it is a testament to what the Astros have done. And I may be seeing things a little bit through Astros-colored glasses at the moment. I listened to Astro Ball by Ben Ryder recently via Audible, and more than I would have expected to. I recommend it to anyone. Uh, It's very insightful, and it really gives you some reasons to believe that what the Astros are doing is not normal. It's not just, this happens to be the best team in the league. They benefited a lot from tanking. There's far more to it than that. And at this point, I think they might cruise to a World Series repeat, which again, given how long it's been since we saw a repeat champion at all, uh, says a whole lot of things at once. I think that's all I have for now. There are other news items floating around the league more generally. Uh, Some things about teams that aren't in the playoffs that are worth digging into. And I'll do that in another podcast later this week. But for now, this is Matt Trueblood. I write for Baseball Prospectus. And I publish an email newsletter called Penning Bull, about which you can find out more by going to penningbull.com. You can find everything about me on Twitter, at MATrueBlood. I'm working to get this available from as many platforms as possible through Anchor, the app I use to publish it. Uh, Right now, I know you can get it through Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify. So check out those things. Tell your friends, and we'll talk to you next time.